arrive over there in Isaiah chapter 32. And if you look at verse number 1, the Bible says, Behold a king. Now, the Isaiah is kind of shifting gears from last week when we were in Isaiah chapter 31. Uh, now he's starting to kind of be, talk about the millennial reign and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he gives us a little insight into that. And he says, Behold a king. The king being referred to there is, of course, Jesus. Notice, shall reign in righteousness and princess. Okay, so you've got the king who's reigning in righteousness. And then you've got princess. That's, that's us. That's you and night. Usually when you think of the word prince, you think of like the son of a king. But the word prince in the Bible is just talking about someone who's like in authority, someone who's uh, would be would be coming first or someone who, who is under the king. And it says, princess shall rule in judgment. I want you to notice the coming kingdom of Christ is not a kingdom where Christ reigns by himself. But the Bible says that there are princes that shall rule with him. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 32. Of course, that's our passage for tonight. Go with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 5, and look at verse number 9. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. The Bible says that you and I will reign with Christ. We will rule in judgment with Christ. There are princes that will rule with the king. Revelation chapter 5. First book, um, good night. Not first book, last book in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 5, and look at verse number 9. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, the Bible says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by the blood uh, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, verse 10, and has made us, the people that were redeemed by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God, notice this, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Do you see that? The Bible teaches that Christians that were redeemed are going to reign on the earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're there in Revelation chapter 5. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse number 6. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 6. The Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter number 20 and verse number 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Notice this and shall reign with him a thousand years. We talk about it this morning, having a vision for the future, but let me ask you something. How will you spend eternity? Or how will you spend the millennial reign? Well, I'm not talking about your salvation. Hopefully you're saved, and hopefully you have that assurance of your salvation. You know, you know you're on your way to heaven. But let me tell you something. The Bible teaches that there are some of us who will reign with Christ. We will rule with Christ. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but the Bible teaches there's a judgment coming, the judgment seat of Christ, when we will give an account for the things that were done in our body, and if our, the things that were done in our life are, are, are considered of eternal value, then God will reward us with crowns and the ability to be able to reign with Him. And, you know, today we have a lot of Christians, and we'll see it as we go into the passage in Isaiah, that really just don't care about the things of God. They really just don't care about heaven and eternity. And I'm here to tell you, Many a Christian is going to get to heaven, like the Bible says, as of by fire, with absolutely no rewards, because they did nothing for Christ while they were on this earth. 
And it's good to just be reminded every once in a while that there is a king that shall reign, but there will be princes that shall rule in judgment with him. There will be kings and priests that will reign on the earth with him also. Go back to Isaiah 32. Look at verse number 2. Isaiah 32 and verse 2. Isaiah 32 is kind of an interesting verse. There's a song that we sing uh, in our hymn book uh, called uh, A Shelter in the Time of Storm, and that song is taken from Isaiah 32 and verse number 2. Notice what it says, Isaiah 32 and verse 2, And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert, that word covert, comes from the word covering or cover. It's the same word as a shelter uh, from the tempest. The word tempest means storm, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadows of a great rock in a weary land. And, and you know, we sing that song, uh, uh, you know, the, a shelter in the time of storm. And it, though that passage, that, that song is taken from this verse. Because notice where it says, in hiding place, the, the song says, the Lord of a rock in him we hide a shelter in the time of storm or a covert from the tempest i guess that doesn't really rhyme that's why i didn't go with that right and then notice um it where it says as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land uh the song says a shade by day defense by night uh and then it says there a great rock in the weary land oh jesus is the rock in a weary land is what the song says so that song is taken from here and it's interesting and, and and the reason i say that is just to point out the reason that we sing the songs that we sing the reason that we sing out of the hymn book is because the songs of the that are in that hymn book those you know people say oh those songs are so boring and those songs are so old and those songs for different generation but let me tell you something those songs have doctrine in them those songs are taken out of scripture and they are teaching you the bible the bible tells us that one of the purposes of singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs is to admonish one another is to be able to learn the bible and learn scripture and today you go to the average liberal church and you're going to hear a bunch of shallow music a bunch of music that, yeah, it's appetizing to the flesh, but it doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't give you any doctrine. And the songs that we sing, you say, well, those songs are so old, but they're full of doctrine. They're full of the Word of God. They're full, uh, uh, they're taken straight out of Scripture in many cases there. Uh, a hiding place, a shelter in the rock, uh, uh, Jesus' rock in a weary land. Look, look at verse number 3 there, Isaiah 32, verse 3. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim. And again, he's talking to us about this idea of the coming kingdom of Christ. And he begins to tell us that, see, today, your eyes, as you grow older, eventually become dim. Eventually, people need glasses, and they're not able to see as well, and some people get into older age and completely lose their sight. The Bible says there's coming a day when the eyes of them that see shall not be dim. And the ears of them that hear shall hearken. You're not, you're not going to go hard of hearing. And you're not going to begin to lose your hearing. He says, hey, the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge. Notice this. The tongue of the stammer shall be ready to speak plainly. See, on this earth, in this body, we have imperfections and there are things wrong with our bodies and sometimes we stammer and sometimes we can't see right. Sometimes we can't hear right. And sometimes you got aches and pains and you got things in your body. You say, I I, I wish I didn't have that. I wish that would go away. But the Bible says that there's coming a day when your eye won't grow dim and your ear will hearken like it always has. And you'll be able to speak plainly and and the, the effects of this world will have no effect on you in that future kingdom of God. Go back to Revelation chapter 21. Let me show you a verse on that. Revelation chapter 21. 
Look at verse number 4. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. I apologize, I should have told you to keep your place in Revelation 5, when you're there in Revelation 5, but it should be easy to find. Revelation chapter 21, and look at verse number 4, the Bible says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Aren't you looking forward to that day when there's no death, there's no funerals? There's no crying, there's no sorrow, there's no more pain. The former things are passed away, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That includes your body. One day you're going to get a body, it's not going to get tired. It's not going to get old. It's not going to get frail. It's not, your, your, your eyes won't ever go dim and your hearing, you'll, you'll, you won't lose your hearing. He says, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. He says, You can count on the fact that there's coming a day where God says, I'm going to make everything new. And I, I'm going to give you a new body that won't have the problems that we have uh, today. Go back to Isaiah 32. Look at verse 5. Isaiah 32 and verse 5. There, there's, there's a lot of kind of just interesting things in this chapter, and we're going to uh, try to do the best to get through all of them. Isaiah 32, look at verse 5. This is a very interesting verse, I think, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 32 and verse 5, because, see, I, Isaiah wasn't around uh, when Fox News was invented. You know, Isaiah wasn't around when CNN was invented. Isaiah wasn't around with the modern uh, media. But notice what Isaiah says. He, he seems to know exactly what, uh, what we would be dealing with during the last days before the kingdom of God, uh, before God, you know, sets down his kingdom. Because he says in v- verse 5, he says, the vile person. Now, the word vile means disgusting. It means bad. It means wicked. And it says, the vile person, notice this, shall, no more, uh, shall be no more called liberal. You know that today there's a whole movement of people that are called liberals? You know, and, and, and here's what you got to understand about the word liberal. The word liberal in the Bible is actually not a bad word. Like today, you know, among conservatives, you know, among Christians, you know, don't call me a liberal. You know, liberals are bad. But the Bible, in the Bible, the word liberal itself is actually not a bad word. Keep your finger on Isaiah 32. Go to Proverbs chapter number 11. Proverbs chapter number 11, uh, towards the middle of, of the Old Testament there, uh, right after the book of Psalms. Proverbs chapter number 11. The word liberal just means... Uh, often in scripture it means generous, it means you, it, it has the same idea as liberty, or even almost like being loose, which is why we call the liberals liberals, but in scripture it's often a, a good thing. Proverbs chapter number 11 and verse 25, let me just give you one example. Proverbs chapter number 11 and verse number 25, the Bible says, the liberal soul shall be made fat. And, and it's actually, the idea is talking about, get, you know, he's saying someone who's liberal, someone who's loose, someone who's uh, generous. It's kind of what we were talking about this morning. You cannot give God. He says, you, you, you give to others, but God's going to make you fat. And the idea there is not fat like you and I think of fat as a negative thing. He, he's talking about, you know, fat's a good thing. You know, fat means you're healthy. Fat means you're well-fed. You know what I mean? Fat means you got uh, money in the account. He says, the liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth. Notice, notice how, how he's trying to explain this. He that watereth shall be watered also himself. Here's what he's saying. He's saying you give away and you're liberal and you're generous and people are going to give to you just like we're talking about this morning. See, the word liberal is not a bad word. You know, and it's interesting how Satan likes to take words that are good words and he hijacks them and gives them a bad uh, definition. 
But Isaiah here, if you go back to Isaiah 32 and verse 5, he says there's coming a day when the vile person will be called by the good word liberal. You understand that? He said there's coming a day when a vile person, a wicked person, a disgusting person is going to take on that, that good word, that, that good uh, name of being liberal. Now no, notice verse 6. For the vile person will speak villainy. And his heart, now here's what a vile person actually does. His heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy, to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instrument also of the churl are evil. He devises wicked devices. I want you to make, make note of this and underline this in your Bible if you like to underline things. To destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. See, today, you know, we have uh, a political movement that's called, you know, you got the liberals and the conservatives. And, and you know, they both got issues and they both got problems. But the Bible says that there's coming a day when vile people will be called liberal. When vile, and, and, and the liberal movement today, I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, condoning or I'm not, you know, saying that the conservative movement in this country, I mean, all poli- let me just cue you in on something. If someone's a politician, they're not a good person, okay? It's because they couldn't go get a real job, you know, it's because they, they're not honest, okay? They're all liars. I don't care if they got an R next to their name or an L or whatever, a D, they're all bad. But here's the thing. Today, there's a liberal movement that's a vile movement. I mean, liberals today, the, the, you, if you say, somebody says to you, I'm a liberal, and, and you're talking about politics, Here's what it means they stand for. They stand for sodomites. They stand for abortion. They stand for, you know, just communism and everything that the Bible is against. And today there are people who are vile. I mean, do you understand that? That's a word that God uses for sodomy, where it's just vile. It's an abomination. It's disgusting. And today you have vile people who are called the good word liberal. And here's what's interesting. I mean, Isaiah kind of just calls it out because here's what he says. Look at verse 6. To make empty the souls of the hungry. He says, I'm gonna, the, the liberals who are not actually liberals, they're actually vile people who are being called liberal. They're going to go find hungry people and make them empty. They're going to cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Verse 7, they're going to destroy the poor with lying words. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 32. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. And they're going to practice hypocrisy. And let me tell you something. The liberal movement today feigns itself and acts like they're for the poor of the country. You know, uh, you know I, I, I've seen the bumper stickers, and again, I'm not a Republican, and I'm not condoning, but I, I've seen the bumper stickers people have on the back of their car, and it'll say, I'm too poor to be a Republican. And it's like this thing like, Democrats are for poor people, Republicans are for, you know, bad people, or, or for rich people. You know, and the liberals, they want to help out the poor people. But let me tell you something, Isaiah called it right when he said that the vile people that are called liberals are actually out to destroy the poor with lying words. Do you understand the agenda that the liberal movement of today is, they say, well, we want to help poor people. We want to be here for the poor. But honestly, what they want to do is destroy poor people and they want to keep them under the bondage. And they don't want to try to allow them and help them uh, to, to get ahead in life. Go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 10. Look what the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that. Notice what Paul said. If any would not work, neither should he eat. Do you see that? You say, what, what's the welfare system that the, that the Bible teaches? Here's what the Bible teaches. You go to work and then you eat. And if you don't want to work, then you shouldn't eat. 
I mean, do you understand that? The Bible teaches that a man ought to get up, go to work, and, and feed himself. And in the Bible, here's what you guys say. In the Bible, there was a welfare system. And if you study the Old Testament, you will find that there were people that had money, and they had fields, and they had orchards, and they had vines. And God commanded them that they, when they went out to harvest, that they were to go through it once and not to go back over. Meaning, when they went and brought in the harvest, you know, anything that they missed, anything that they didn't grab the first time, they weren't allowed to go back and grab it again. But that was to be left for the orphans and the widow. It was the welfare system that God established. But here's what's great about God's welfare system, is He still expected the poor of the land. They said, well, they didn't have a job, and they were in a bad economy, and they couldn't get a good job. But they were still expected to get up every day and go somewhere and pick up the actual food that they were going to eat. Yes, it was given to them, but they were expected to do something. And today, you've got the liberals who say, the welfare system is going to give everybody money. You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. We'll pay for your groceries. We'll pay for your rent. We'll give you your health care. And they, they say it's for the betterment of the poor. But you know that giving people money for not working is the worst thing you can do for them? And I'm not talking about people who need help, and I understand that people need help and we should help people that aren't able to work. I'm talking about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people in the United States of America that have nothing wrong with their body. They can go get a job and they won't because the government will support them. And that's wrong. It's wicked. The Bible says that if you do not work, you should not eat. Look at verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all. You say, well, Pastor, you don't understand. Some people just have tough times. They can't find a job. And they can, Look, we ought to help people that are out there working and they're trying and they're just struggling. I'm all for helping them. Here's for who I'm not for helping, the person who worketh not at all. And there are people whose job, whose career is to just live off the government. And they could go get a job. They could go work. They could go make money. But they just think, well, if I do that, then the government's not going to help me. And we've got this whole society of people who says, we're liberal. We want to help the poor. So we're just going to give them, look, the best thing you can do for someone who's poor is give them a job and put them to work. Look at verse 12. Now them that are such, we commanded and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness, notice, they work and eat their own bread. Now, don't miss this. Look at verse 13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Notice how he says, be not weary in well-doing. He's not saying don't help people. We ought to help people, and from time to time, people struggle, and they go through hard times, and it's not that they're lazy, they're just, they just need someone to help them out, and we're all for that. At Verity Baptist Church, I wish I could tell you about all the groceries that we buy for people, and we help people with their bills. I, I mean, if someone is trying, and someone is working, and they just need a hand up, we'll give them a hand up, but I'm against just giving a hand out. You understand that? I mean, I have people call me every day asking for money, and here's my, here's my acid test. If you want to know the secret to getting money for Verity Baptist Church. Okay, if you want to call me and say, Pastor, I, here's the secret. Here's what I, I tell everyone, and I've never had one person take me up on it. They say, uh, can, can, uh, we, we have, you know, we need this or we need that. Here's what I always say. Come to one of the church services, and we'll buy you groceries. Or come to one of the church services, bring me your bill. And, and oh, here's all I'm asking. Get up off the couch, get dressed, and go to a service and look me face to face. And I've never had one person. Do you know that in four years I've never had one person show up? And I'm telling them, like, hey, I'll buy you groceries for the week. I'll pay your PG&E bill. I'll help you. Just come. And it's like, oh, too much to ask. You know, I'll just call down the list. And we're just, you know, creating the society of laziness. And we're creating, by the way, teach your kids to work hard. So we give kids our, our allowance. Why do you give them an allowance? Is that how the real world works? 
You know, I, we give our kids money when they work. Because guess what? One day they're going to have to get, go get a job and work. You know, and you ought not just give your kids money and just spoil them. You ought to teach them to work. Be not weary in well-doing. Help someone out if they need help. If they're trying and they're working, hey, I'm all for helping them. And there are people, you know, with this, every time I preach this, I get emails. I'm not, you know, you're in a wheelchair and you can't, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about people that are healthy that refuse to work. It's wicked and it's wrong. And the vile person today that's called liberal is actually out to destroy the poor with lying words. Go back to Isaiah 32. Look at verse 9. Isaiah 32, verse 9. You say, I like the sermon on vision better. Well, the offering's over. Isaiah 32, look at verse 9. The problem with God's people. Isaiah 32, look at verse 9. Rise up, ye women. Now, here's what you're going to understand. Isaiah's talking to the women, but he's referring to the nation of Israel. Because in verse 13, he says, upon the land of my people, when he's talking to the women. And in the Bible, he's using that illustration of women because you remember Ephesians 5 teaches us that the church is, uh, is, is, is illustrated as the bride of Christ, as a, as a female. And he says, rise up, ye women that are at ease. You want to know what's wrong with God's people today? We're too at ease. Things are too easy. You want to know what's wrong with Christianity in America today? It's easy. He says, rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless. You know what the word careless means? It's without care. I know you need to go back to the Greek to figure that out. Careless means without care. It means you, you don't have a care in this world. And because of that, you just don't care. He says, rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. Give ear unto uh, my speech. Verse 10. Many days and years ye shall be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Verse 11, tremble, ye women that are at ease, be troubled, ye, notice, careless ones, strip you and make you bear in good sackcloth upon your loins. The, Isaiah is saying, here's the problem with God's people, is they're at ease and they just don't care. They're careless. They're without a care. Now, here's what you're going to say. You say, well, how does God respond to that? Look, look at verse 10 again. Notice what he says. Because here's what you're going to say. When we are comfortable, see, the problem is not helping. The problem is not reaching out. The problem is not giving and, and providing. Our very baptism, we, we will help people. But we want to see that they're actually trying, that they're actually working. You're a man, and you're going to work every day, and you're just not making it. Because the way that society is structured, look, we're, we want to help you out. In fact, we want to encourage you because you actually are trying. But the, these people are just like, you know, I've been, been looking for a job for like four and a half years. It's like, come on, man, you could have found a job by now, you know, type thing. And I know that it's a hard market out there and all of that. But look, look at verse 10. Many days and years shall ye be troubled. See, here's how God responds to careless and Christians that are at ease. People that are just a little too comfortable. He always responds the same way in the Bible. Many days and years shall ye be troubled. Do you see that? Ye careless women, for the vintage. Now the vintage is how they made money. The vintage shall fail, and the gathering shall not come. So they would go to the vintage, to, and they would gather their, their harvest so that they could eat. But he says, God says, I'm going to make that fail. He says, I'm going to make your economy fail. I'm going to make you lose your job, and the gathering shall not come. He says, tremble. Ye women that are at ease, be troubled. Ye careless ones, strip you and make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. See, the way that God responds to Christians that are at ease, to Christians that are careless, to Christians that are a little too comfortable and causes them to not care 
and not want to help and not want to do anything is that God brings trouble and oftentimes He brings financial heartache to get you, look at verse 11, to tremble, ye women that are at ease, and to be troubled, ye careless ones, strip you and make you bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. You say, what's that? In the Bible, they would often rip off their clothes and they put sackcloth on and they put dust on their, on their heads and, and it would be a, a turning back to God. See, often God will have us go through trials because we're a little too comfortable. And He wants to just kind of shake you and scare you to get you back your attention to God. Look at verse 12. They shall lament. Why are they going to lament? For the teats, the, the, the word means breast there, for the pleasant field and for the fruitful vine. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying I'm going to get to the point where you're so, you're so anemic, you are so, you know, not well, you're, you're not eating well, that women that are nursing won't even be able to produce the milk that their children need. I mean, that's pretty bad. He's saying, you're going to lament for the teeth. You're going to lament for the pleasant field. He said, that field that used to be pleasant, that field that used to produce, that field that used to bring you much income, you're going to lament over that field. You're going to lament for the fruitful vine upon the land of my people. Verse 13, shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joy city, because the palaces shall be forsaken. Notice this, the multitude of the city shall be left. He said, he said when I'm done with you, your little downtown New York, or your downtown San Francisco, with all the hustle and bustle and all your business and all your different activities that, that have taken your attention from He said, I, I'm going to destroy all of that. Those cities are going to be, uh, you know, forsaken and, and they're going to become ghost town. He said, those fruitful vines and those fruitful fields, they're not going to produce. He said, here's why I'm going to do it all. To get your attention. Because you're a little too comfortable, you're a little too at ease. Look at verse 14. Because the palaces shall be broken, the multitude of cities shall be left, the forts and the towers shall be for dense for, forever, a joy of wild asses, a, a pasture of flocks. He said, he said animals are going to take over your land. Now keep your finger there in Isaiah 32. And look, at, look, look at Psalm 119. I, I want you to understand uh, what Isaiah is saying. Because he, he says something interesting in verse 15. But you've got to understand this. Isaiah 119 in verse number 71. Isaiah 119 in verse 71. The psalmist said this. Isaiah 119 and verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. So why, why would it be good to be afflicted? Notice what he says, that I might learn thy statutes. Amen. See, the problem that we have is that we often, we, the, the income's just a little too steady, and we're just a little too at ease, and we're a little too comfortable, and we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're, we're prone to just kind of get distracted. We're prone to just kind of, well... Life's good, I'm comfortable, everything's fine. And God says, you know, I don't mind bringing trouble. I don't mind bringing lament. I don't mind kind of shaking you a little bit if it means I'll get your attention. Because the psalmist said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Now, now here's what I want you to see. Go, go back to Isaiah 32, look at verse 15. God says, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy your income. I'm going to get you a point of starvation. Uh, I'm going to, you know, your, your land is going to bring up thorns and bribes. He says, it's, gonna be, it's not, it's not going to be good. You're not going to be comfortable. You're going to be worried. It's, it's, it's not going to be good for you. And then verse 15 says this, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. It's this, you say, what is that referring to? That's referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God, God says this, when you're at ease and when you're comfortable and when you're distracted, I can't use you because you're full of self. You're full of what I want, what I need, what, what my desires. 
But God says, if I afflict you a little bit, and if I shake you a little bit, and if I scare you a little bit, then you are primed to be able to pour out my spirit upon you. He says, I can put my hand on you. And here's what you got to understand. In the Bible, there is this concept. The secret to God's power is pain. The secret to God's power is pain. Notice he says, until the spirit be poured out upon us from on high. Go, go to uh, 2 uh, Corinthians chapter number 12. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. And look at verse number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse 7. This is a passage we've seen many times. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. But let's just look at it again. You say, Pastor, I, I want the power of God on my life. You got to understand this. The secret to God's power is pain. Because what often drives us to God is affliction. What often drives us to God is is pain and it's trouble. By the way, that's why right before Jesus comes back to this earth, there's this whole period called the Great Tribulation, where God wants to get the, the gospel into the entire world. You say, well, how does God get the gospel into the entire world? Oh, I know how. He, uh, he gets a preacher to get up and preach on soul winning. Well, that only works for some people. Show up on Saturday morning. You'll see. <laughs> you say, well, I know how God's going to do it. He's going to tell in the Bible that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, that only works for some people. Look at the missionaries that are going out. But God says, you know what? If I just bring persecution and force you out of your house and force you into the world and, and bring trouble, that'll get the whole gospel out to the entire world. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about why, why does God bring this great tribulation into the world? It's the same reason he always brings tribulation into our lives. It's to get us to stop being at ease. Because when we're at ease, we're lazy. When we're at ease, we're careless. When we're at ease, we just don't care. Are you there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Look at verse number 7. We talked about the Apostle Paul this morning. What was the secret to the great power of the Apostle Paul? What was the secret to the great use of God? Well, notice 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. You say, what's that talking about? Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul was used to write most of the New Testament. He had an abundance of revelation. God, God allowed him to, to, to write much of Scripture. And Paul says, you know, it would have been easy to get exalted above measure. He's, it would have been easy to get a big head. It would have been easy to start getting a little proud because of the amount of power, uh, the amount of use that God was using me because he was using me with this abundance of revelation. He says, so because of that, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Talking about a physical ailment. And he says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. That word buffet means, I mean, literally just to get punched. Can you imagine if God said to Satan, I'm giving you permission to just put a thorn in this guy's flesh and you can just, I mean, he's just telling Satan, you can just punch him in the face whenever you want. (laughs) I mean, think about that. You're like, thank you, God. You know, I mean, I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm, I'm bringing the gospel to the entire world. I mean, I'm, I'm writing most of the New Testament. And God says, yeah, I know. And because of that, because I want to empower you, because I want to use you, I need Satan to just punch you in the face every once in a while. You say, well, well, what's that for? Notice what he says. Verse seven, let's read verse 7 again. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan that buffeted me, lest I should be exalted... Above measure. He says, see, every once in a while, we need to just kind of be brought down. Every once in a while, we kind of just need to be humble. 
You say, you say, Pastor Jimenez, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. I'm expecting this week and the next couple of weeks to be a pretty hard week. You say, why is that? Because we just raised $22,000. <laughs> and it would be easy to say, man, look at us. Look at what we've done. And every once in a while, God just kind of slap you down. And say, I want to use you, so I need you to not be full of you, so I can fill you with my spirit. See, he says, Paul, I want to use you, but I need you to not be exalted above measure. I need you to not get, get so proud, so I'm going to put a thorn in your flesh. Look at verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. Now, when he says thrice there, I don't believe, you know, he's saying that he went to God three times and just asked God to remove. I believe he's talking about there was three seasons of prayer. There was three, you know, times in his life where he, where he really went to God and maybe fasted and prayed and he was pleading with God and saying, God, can, will you remove this thorn in the flesh? And, and, you know, everybody has their, their idea of what the thorn in the flesh I believe is a problem with his eyes. I've talked about that before. I won't go into that. But he had this, this problem. He had this disease or he had this sickness. He had this, this thing in his, the Bible says it's in his flesh. It was a thorn in his flesh. So uh, some sort of a bodily uh, ailment. And he said, I went to the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I mean, he, I mean, think about this. You got the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, going to God, praying, fasting, and saying, God, will you heal me? Paul has healed people. And can't heal himself. And think, God, will you heal me? God, will you take this from me? God, this hurts. God, it's embarrassing. God, God, I could do more if you wouldn't afflict me or trouble me, cause me to tremble, cause me to lament. Look at verse 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient. That word sufficient means it's enough for thee. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying, Paul, you don't need health. You need me. You understand that? You say, oh, God, if you just gave me a better job, you don't understand. I could do so much more. But sometimes God says, you don't need a better job. You just need me. Well, God, if you just gave me this and you just gave me that. Because sometimes God says, you don't need all that, Paul. You just need my grace is sufficient for thee. And here's what he says. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. See, he says, Paul, when there's less of you, there can be more of me. And when there's more of you, there's less of me. And the only way to pour out my spirit is to afflict you and to trouble you and to bring you down. And now notice what Paul says. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Paul says, Paul says once I got that, once I understood that, once I understood that the only reason that God is using me the way that he's using me is because of the thorn in the flesh. Once I understood that the only reason that I'm able to do the things that I do is because of this messenger of Satan to buffet me. Once I understood that there was this weakness in my life, but that weakness was the key to the power of God in my life. He said, it changed my perspective. He said, before I would complain, before I would go to God and say, God, take this away. God, remove this from me. But he says, now I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You understand what he's saying? He's saying... I'd rather have the infirmity and have the power of God than not have the infirmity and not have the power of God. See, at some point, you and I are going to have to decide, do we want God to use us? Because here's what you've got to understand. If you want God to use you, it'll come through affliction. It'll come through troubles. It'll come through tribulation. You've got to write it down. You say, well, I want God to use me. Then you're signing up for a thorn in your flesh. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Amen. He says, I take pleasure in reproaches. He said, I take pleasure in necessities. He said, I take pleasure in persecutions. He said, I take pleasure in distresses. You say, well, why would you take pleasure in those things? He said, I take pleasure in those things. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Amen. 
You understand? See, God doesn't, you say, well, well, if I was stronger physically, I could do more for God. But God says, you know what, I can use you more if you're weak. Amen. He says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because then the power of God is resting upon me. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you, the only way to get the power of God in your life is every once in a while to let him afflict you and let him trouble you and let him bring you down and let him lower you. Because when there's less of you, there can be less of him. And when there's less of you, there can be more of his power. You say, well, why would you want the power of God? Because you can always do more with God. Go back to Isaiah 32. Look at verse 15. Isaiah 32 and verse 15. See, at Verity Baptist Church, you know what we need? The Spirit to be poured upon us. You know what we need? You say, well, you need the pastor to have the Spirit poured upon you. No, we, we need all of us to have the Spirit poured upon us. I need a bunch of soul winners going out every week that has the Spirit of God on their lives. You need the Spirit of God to help you raise your kids. And you need the Spirit of God to help you have a good marriage. You need the Spirit of God to run that business that you're running. You need the Spirit of God for whatever it is that you're going to do in, the, in your life. You need the Spirit of God to help you. I'm not talking about the indwelling, sealing of the Spirit because you're saved. I'm talking about the power of God coming upon you. Him putting His hand on you. Him pouring His Spirit on you. And Him helping you. Because notice what the Spirit of God does. Isaiah 32, verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. Notice, when the Spirit gets poured out, then the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Do you see that? The wilderness is talking about the desert. He said, until the Spirit be poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field. You say, well, Pastor, you it's very Baptist churches in a wilderness. I mean, we've been producing for the last four years. We've, we've, been, we've been reaching people, and, and the church has been growing, and, and, and the finances have been good. And you're right. And you know what? We ought to be thankful for that. There's many a church that after four years isn't able to do the things that we've done. And I'm not bragging or boasting. I'm just letting you know we're doing well for where we're at it, you know, in four years' time. We, we've been fruitful. But notice, when the Spirit comes down, the wilderness becomes fruitful. Notice the last part of verse 15. And the fruitful field to be counted a forest. Do you see that? You say, well, Pastor Medes, every year, Verity Baptist Church reaches, you know, 200 people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every year, Verity Baptist Church has 20 uh, people uh, baptized. Every, every year, the church grows by 20, 25 people. But can you imagine, you say, that's a fruitful field. And praise the Lord for it. I'm thankful for everything we do around here. But if the Spirit of God poured, got poured out in our life, if we all, not just me, but all of us, really got a hold of the power of God. I mean, could you envision one day our church having 400, 600 people saved every year? Could you envision one day our church baptizing 100, 200 people? I mean, could you envision one day, well, you say, well, we're a fruitful field, but we can be a forest. We, we're a fruitful field, but we can do more with God. But see, you got to understand this. With that may come pain. With that may come a thorn in the flesh. With that may come a, a, a lost job. With that may come some heartache. With that may come some lament. With that may come some trembling. Because the secret to the power of God is pain. Notice verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Skip down to verse number 20. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 20. Let me show you just a couple of things and we'll, be, and we'll be done. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 20. And I want you to just kind of see this, because we're going to look at a, uh, a few different passages so you can, so you can get this in, and we'll be done tonight. Isaiah 32 verse 20. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters... And send forth hither the feet of the ox and the ass. So he says, you're blessed if you sow. Okay, so what, what does it mean to sow? Keep, keep your finger in Isaiah 32, verse 20. Go with me to Luke chapter number 8. Just real quickly, Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at a few, uh, a few passages and we'll be done. Luke chapter 8, you're in Isaiah 32. 
Luke chapter 8 and verse number 5. Blessed are ye that sow. And, and I know that this is probably familiar for some of you, but let's just look at it together. Luke chapter number 8 and verse number 5. Notice what the Bible says. A sower went out to sow his seed. You're familiar with this parable. And he sowed, as he, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorn sprang up with it and choked it. Another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but just skip down to verse number 11. The disciples asked Jesus, what was that parable about? And here's what he says in verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So when he's talking about sowing, he's talking about taking the word of God and sowing it and spreading it on different type, and he said, you know, some of it fell upon rocks, some of it fell upon thorns, some of it fell uh, by the wayside. He said, but some of it fell upon good ground. And that's what we go, when we go out soul winning, we're just kind of spreading that seed. And, and sometimes it goes on, gra- uh, on the, the wayside, and sometimes it goes on stony places, but every once in a while, we get that good ground, and someone gets saved. So that sowing represents getting the gospel out. Now, in, in Isaiah 32, 20, it says, Blessed are ye that sow, but notice, it's not just blessed are ye that sow, it's blessed that ye are, ye, are ye that sow beside all waters. So what is that waters referring to? Go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Look at verse number 15. Revelation chapter 17. So what does it mean to sow? Sow means you get the word of God and you spread it and you preach the gospel and, and you don't worry about where it lands. You don't worry about who it is. You just get the word out there and try to get people saved. But he says, you're blessed when you sow beside all water. So what does that water is referred to? Are you there in Revelation 17? Look at verse number 15. Revelation 17 and verse 15. And he saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That word tongues mean languages. In the book of Revelation, we're told that waters represent different peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Did you catch that? So waters are different nationalities. Waters are different countries. Waters are different people. What's sowing? Going out, soul winning. Going out, sowing the word. Going out, preaching the gospel. Isaiah 32, 20. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters. He's talking about getting the gospel out to the entire world. Because what are the waters? Nations and peoples and multitudes and tongues. He said, look, you're blessed if you sow the, near the waters and if you get the gospel out to the world and to different tongues. And notice, don't miss this, that send forth hither the feet of the ox and the ass. Go to Romans chapter 10. I just want you to see the reference to send forth. Romans chapter number 10, well-known passage. You've seen it before. Let's just look at it again. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? He said, look, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But then he has this question. How are they going to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom and they have not heard? Can someone believe on someone they've never even heard about? And how shall they hear without a preacher. you understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, if someone simply calls upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. But how are they supposed to call if they don't believe? And how are they supposed to believe if they've never even heard it? And how are they supposed to hear it without a preacher? Now notice verse 15. And how shall they preach except they be saved? You see that? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So in Isaiah 32, 20, he says, Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters and send forth hither the feet of the ox and the ass. You say, well, what does that have to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Because here's what you understand. The secret to the power of God is pain. But when God's power comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, it always produces the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Say, prove it. Acts 1.8. Let's go there. Let's just see it together. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. Acts chapter number 1 and verse 8 says, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The Bible says, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That's the, uh, the Spirit being poured upon us from on high. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost will come upon, upon, upon you. You say, well, what's the point of that? What's the purpose of that? And ye shall be witnesses unto me, notice, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. See, the Spirit of God coming upon you always produces the gospel being preached in your Jerusalem and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of, uh, of the earth. And I want you to notice the word both. Do you see how it says, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea? Both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria? Both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth? You say, well, how can I preach the gospel in Jerusalem and in Samaria? How can I preach the gospel in Jerusalem and in the uttermost parts of the earth? Here's how we preach the gospel both. We reach our Jerusalem here, and then we support missionaries to go do it out there. So remember, when we give, we are going to produce fruit that will abound to our account. You say, well, how, how, how are we going to reach, uh, you know, Sacramento and the Philippines? Here's how we do it. We go out soul winning in Sacramento, and then we support missions in the Philippines. And then we support missions around this world. And as God will allow us, we will take on more missionaries. And we support more missionaries. Why? Because we are to go both to Jerusalem and Judea. Both to Jerusalem and Samaria. Both to Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You say, well, how does that happen? How do you get excited about that? Here's how it happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you sow beside waters and you send forth. You say, well, how do I get the Holy Spirit upon me? You get afflicted. You get burdened. You lose your job. You lose your health. You go through struggles. You get a thorn in the flesh and you say, God, take this away. And God says, I can't take it away because that makes you weak. And when you are weak, you are strong because the less there is of you, the more there is of me. And what to God, we would have some Christians that would say, you know what, God? Do what you got to do. Have me go through whatever you need me to go. If it means that the power of God will rest upon me and the gospel is preached from this place. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.